This is Hell. Thank you for tuning in to This is Hell on Wednesday, May 11th. It is 10.01 a.m. here in Rogers Park, west of Ridge Avenue, Chicago, Illinois. My name's Lindsay, Lindsay Gorey, and I am running the soundboard, and I am live streaming, and I'm recording that live stream so that we can play it on the radio later. Doing all that at the same time, filling in for host Chuck Mertz, who was apparently back this week. Um, If I heard heard correctly from uh, Monday's episode, that Chuck will be returning again for a Patreon podcast this Friday the 13th. And next week, we'll be recording a live new interview on Monday and if that goes well then possibly the next week a full week of new interviews with Chuck let's hope I don't know it sounds hard I get tired just doing it one day a week myself and if you're following up with me from last week's PMS ranting about you know being a person with a fertile uterus in the United States of America, you know, in this day and age. Well, I got my period, so (laughs) it's great, but it was a little late, which was, like, so ridiculous. I, it, my period's always early, so it was pretty stressful this time around. (laughs) But here we are. I have cramps. I have lower back pain. I have pain throughout my whole body, because that's what happens when you menstruate is it just inflames all your pain (laughs) it's awesome so um yeah i'm getting kind of tired of all this you know it's just so it's just so much to it's so much to think about all the time and i think that sebastian and dan have done a really good job uh you know covering the abortion topic uh seb wrote us up a great historical you know informative soapbox piece uh, last week and I'd like to say I actually I make soap I make soap and so if you need a soapbox and if you need he had a really good idea of us funding ourselves with a subscription of of shampoo and toothpaste I say let's do it I got the soap but anyways um, and then yeah Dan's uh, played a episode yesterday that was very informative about abortion too so i'm not going to play more of that but we are going to play some equally terrible women is issues (laughs) because this is hell 
Um, as evidenced by uh, menstruation, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> for real, like, I have to, it just doesn't make sense. Like, every, every female, every, I mean, person with a, who gets a period doesn't have to be a woman, you know. But, like, we're expected to show up to work the same. We're expected to go to school the same. And, like, it's weird and awkward if we complain. Like, and then we get paid less, too. Like, if this were an equitable society, we would be, we would be getting paid more for that. We would be getting paid more. That's my feminist stance. Women should be paid more than men. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> kind of. But, anyways... This episode is from February 9th, 2019. It's an interview with writer, scholar, assistant professor of creative writing in African American and Africana Studies at the University of Kentucky, Damaris B. Hill. Well, that was in 2019 at least, so open it up. Damaris's website uh, for further information. Damaris B. Hill is the author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women, from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. That's the 2020 NAACP Image Award nominee for Outstanding Literary, Literary Work in Poetry. She's also the author of The Fluid Boundaries of Suffrage and Jim Crow, Staking Claims in the American Heartland. Uh... And then there's some stuff here I can't pronounce. Visibel textures, visible textures. Oh. <laughs> Visibel textures, visible textures. You need to read that to like see it. But anyways, Hill has studied with writers such as Lucille Clifton, Monifa Love Asante, Natasha Trethewey, Nikki Feeney, David Riverd, Deborah Willis, and others. Her development as a writer has also been enhanced by the institutional support of McDowell, Vermont Studio Center, Breadloaf Writers Conference, Key West Literary Seminar Writers Workshops, Galileo Literary Writers Workshops, the Institute for Digital Res Research and the Humanities, the Project on the History of Black Writing, the Wandering Hole Poetry, the Furious Flower Poetry Center, and others. Similar to her creative process, Hill's scholarly research is interdisciplinary. Hill is an associate professor of creative writing at the University of Kentucky. Well, this interview from 2019 is on the book, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. And uh, writer Damaris Hill traces a history and present of black women imprisoned in America under a paralegal regime of sexual violence and exploitation in the Jim Crow era and beyond, subject to the edges of a legal and economic system built on repression, risking freedom and safety, and the simple acts of navigating daily life in a racist country. So, Sebastian on Friday was, you know, to or Thursday last week was totally right about abortion just being about controlling women's bodies. It doesn't actually have to do with life, you know. Um, and this is another way that the state controls people's bodies is by imprisoning them, whether you're a woman or a man. Um, and yeah, that just that just got me thinking. And, you know, just beyond the abortion debate, how else does the state control women's bodies? I mean, I'm not a historian like Sebastian, but I have heard of forced sterilization being practiced on black and indigenous women throughout the history of this country. 
even one abortion, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like the right to choose an abortion. Well, some uh, there have been many women who have been forcefully sterilized and just the option to reproduce taken away completely by the state. And I mean, it's not even getting into boarding schools. And that's the thing is I think all these people focusing on abortion, pro-life people or whatever, I'm just like... What are you what are you really hiding from? Like you know, there's there's so much more to think about and I guess that's just how I forgot what I was saying now, but <sighs> that's the thing. I don't want to talk about abortion, but now we're gonna talk about women in jail. And it got me thinking because I have worked in a psychiatric nursing home, which uh, I don't really want to get into right now, but I was thinking about it because it's the nursing home that I worked at is definitely within radio broadcast range of uh, WNUR on the north side of Chicago. And I was thinking about that because there was one person who I worked with who I I went to the store and bought him a radio one day, like he because he. He couldn't go anywhere or really do anything, and he didn't have a TV, so he would just sit in front of the radio all day. And so I was like, <laughs> it's possible that some of the people that, you know, that I know could be listening to the radio, although very unlikely. But um, then it got me thinking, is that something that's different about a nursing home from a prison? Like, what kind of technology that people can have there? I, I realized I really didn't know anything about that and so I just started googling that yesterday like you know can can prisoners have radios like what kind of what kind of technology uh you know cell phones are banned computers are like people can use them sometimes but what I learned was that uh radios you can buy in prison commissaries and there's a there's a New Yorker piece from like 2014 about about prison radios I'm pulling it up um it's called the iPod of prison by Joshua Hunt um from 2014 I'm just gonna read a little bit of it in early 2005 Josh Demit arrived at a federal prison camp in Sheridan Oregon to serve a 30-month sentence for starting a fire outside an animal testing facility at Brigham Young University. The 19-year-old received a warm welcome from his fellow inmates who greeted him with coffee and cigarettes, advice on procuring vegan meals, and a pocket AM-FM radio. The radio provided hours of welcome distraction for Demit, who had come from Sheridan's adjoining detention center, where he says he spent weeks without a radio while confined to a small cell at least 23 hours a day. The radio was unlike any Demet had seen outside of prison. With the transparent plastic body that revealed the landscape within, a single AA battery rested at the bottom of its circuit board while its antenna, one and three quarter inches of copper wire, coiled around a small ferret bar, peeked through a white Sony logo, logo just above the AM FM dial. So apparently this kind of radio is very popular in prisons and very rare outside prisons because people typically don't take them with them when they leave prisons is what this New York New Yorker article says. It's very long. Obviously, you know, 
Um, <laughs> but I just find that interesting. They're clear because they're worried about people, um, like, smuggling them. And I also read an article about people who did successfully, it's pretty easy to, like, uh, manipulate them and turn them into walkie-talkies so people could hear the, the guards on their walkie-talkie stations. Um, although the guards are more aware of that these days. But anyways, so I just think the radio is really important and that it is important for us who are not, who are fortunate to not be inside of prison walls to not be inside of psychiatric nursing home walls, um, whatever form of prison you know you you're thinking of, to think about the people who are. It's it's just totally a waste of resources, in human life and labor. Anyways, let's let Damaris talk about her poetry about it. I think that's what maybe is all we can do. You know, we got to cope somehow. All right. Enjoy. This is hell. African-American women have been fighting for black humanity to be seen as human since the colonial era. And much of that fight has been done by courageous women who were targeted by the, by the law for exercising their rights. Here with a love poem for incarcerated black women who have fought for humanity, scholar and writer Damaris B. Hill is author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. Welcome to This Is Hell, Dr. Hill. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here and speak with you about it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Dr. Hill is a writer whose books include her most recent work, The Fluid Boundaries of Suffrage and Jim Crow, Staking Claims in the American Heartland. You can find out more about Damaris at DamarisHill.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Damaris Hill. You start by citing the sentencing uh, project reporting between 1980 and 2016, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 700 percent. Mm-hmm. How does that compare with other groups under mass incarceration? Are women uh, inordinately, uh, differently uh, criminalized now during this era of mass incarceration than they were prior to this era of mass incarceration? I think so. And I think um, looking proportionately, women are being incarcerated at higher rates and more more increasingly. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of factors that are at play. Oftentimes people talk about you know, the surge in the war on drugs and the multiple um, decades and years that it takes for those types of laws to be incorporated and then the sentencing to actually take effect in um, the local, state, and federal court systems. Um, But we can also look at um, the impact of the war on drugs and... the changing um, labor requirements in the U.S. to look at issues of, like, poverty and actual uh, what it takes to sustain a family in our current time and space and how that is somewhat um, being destabilized as compared with previous eras in American history. 
You write how your book is, and you don't have to write this, your book is a collection of poems that honor black women who have had experiences with incarceration. You write, they were inspired by current events and historical framings of black women freedom fighters such as Harriet Tubman, Asada Shakur, and Uh Sandra Bland, some of whom have organized or inspired resistance movements over the last two Uh centuries. Many of the poems detail the violent consequences black women endure while engaged in individual and collective acts of resistance. Uh, are individual and collective acts of resistance by black women any more targeted with violence than other acts of resistance or tar- targeted differently in any other in any way? Are acts of resistance more criminalized when they're done by black women? Well, I think there's an assumption in the American memory and culture that um, black women's actions are not innocent because we in the United States and in many parts of the world we have a weird way of defining things by what they are not and oversimplifying definitions in very polarized way so if white women are innocent victims then black women by assumption and cultural memory do not have access to those same presumptions And so I think that along with the the economy of private prisons and uh, some of the the quotas that are associated with incarceration, uh, coupled with the access to finances and, um, you know, the rising addiction rates in the U.S. and all of these things, I think, make black women who particularly black women that are poor more vulnerable to bias and positions that would have them enter the court system we recently were speaking with michael denzel smith about an article he had Mm -hmm. at harper's magazine and he was talking about how one of the problems that he has the our, uh, uh, the article is about media gatekeepers, white media gatekeepers. Okay. And he was talking about how um, that uh, often when you have a black public intellectual go into the white media, they have to first start with discussing the pain and the oppression and like uh, explaining that there actually is physically violent racism that African-Americans face every day. And he said that problem with having to start every one of those conversations like that is it sets up a tone and a framing for the conversation and a distraction uh, that it can be seen as victimization. Do you see a problem when you interact with the media where you have to first explain that racism does exist in order to continue the conversation? Is that the first thing that you have to do is justify or rationalize your belief that racism does exist? Well, I don't find myself um, in, in that particular situation. So we, we, number one, I think we need to start with my inspiration for this type of research project and this, uh, this particular approach to understanding culture is I came across the statistics about incarceration in a very casual way. And because I love black women and because I love humanity, this issue became important to me. So it wasn't racially motivated 
or wasn't motivated by my career ambitions. I didn't even know that these poems would eventually become this collection. This is my third first poetry manuscript. This is the third evolution of this poetry manuscript. And about two-thirds of the second evolution of the poetry manuscript is sitting in a different space. This happens to be the poetry manuscript that specifically talks about Black women in incarceration, which is important to me. And race as a construction, as a biological construction, is a mythology. It's a mythology. But the consequences of racism in America are real. Yeah, they're very real. And you point out the kind of racism that, uh, for instance, your grandmother uh experienced. Mm-hmm. You, uh, your uh, grandmother's picture opens your book. You write that as far as you know, mm-hmm. she was never formally incarcerated, but the reason you chose to honor her was, quote, because the Jane Crow styles of oppression prevalent mm-hmm. during her lifetime were careful to include violence or threats of violence for mm-hmm. accessing civil liberties. What mm-hmm. do we miss in understanding the Jim Crow era when we don't realize that there was also a Jane Crow set of oppressive tools that were being employed against women? Well, one of the examples in the book is this poem about um, a woman by the name of Ruby McCullum. And it also happens again when we look at Joanne Little, who's actually from the state of North Carolina and the same county that my grandmother's ancestral home is in. Um, But when we talk about Jim Crow, there is a lot of speak of the, about the violence of lynching, but there's not much talk about the violence of lynching was a parallel violence that was running next to the violence of sexual assault and sexual availability of black women to white men. Now, this, this, uh, this might be too, too lewd for the radio. I hope not. But I haven't met a man yet whose desire was racist. Now, his mind might have been racist, but his desire for a woman, I haven't met that guy yet. Whatever color that woman comes in, whatever size that woman comes in, if a man is attracted to that woman, he is attracted to that woman. Um, And so the ways that that played out in the Jane Crow South, specifically is that there was an issue known as paramour rights. And uh, the anthropologist and writer Zora Neale Hurston did some research on this. But paramour rights would be when an affluent or wealthy white man chooses a black woman within the community that he wants to have oftentimes a second family with. Now, his choice for this woman did not require her consent. But the way that the socioeconomic and cultural space was constructed is that there were no boundaries to that man's access. So in the case of Ruby McCollum, a white doctor in the neighborhood descended from people that had once owned other people, had found himself fancied and attracted to her over the course of their um, entanglement He was also elected senator, and even though Ruby was married, her fourth child was visibly his child, and many people understood that. 
at the time when he was murdered, Ruby McCollum was pregnant with a fifth child that we assume was also his. When she was tried, his cousin was the judge presiding over the case and shared his last name. So these are the type of socioeconomic structures and power structures that are in place for black women to negotiate. In that court case, Ruby McCollum was forbidden to speak 31 different times. The only thing that she was able to talk about was the fact that her youngest child was actually the daughter of the man that had been murdered. So that's an example of how these power structures exist and operate. That's just amazing. Let me ask you just as a follow-up on that. So mm-hmm. I did not know about Paramore rights. I am betting that a big part of our listening audience didn't know about Paramore rights. Something we keep coming mm-hmm. across on this show, and I'm just curious about your thoughts on this. Uh, a lot of people think that if you just inform the public, if they become informed, then they will be a, a better public. Do you think that making people more informed about things like Paramore rights that happened during the Jim Crow era, do you think that people being more informed about this, how far does that go towards addressing racism, or isn't information enough? Well, I don't know if information and isolation is enough, but I believe in the human spirit and I also know that race, like ending racism or trying to end racism is very hard, hard work, particularly when everyone in the United States, just by default of the way that our cultural, uh, our culture is constructed, is kind of raised in a white supremacist environment. So like I was, I grew up with very progressive parents. And one thing that my father told me when I was very young, is many people are racist and they don't even know it, right? And so that's that's an approach that I come to when I talk about racism and I teach about racism in America. And so I do think the conversion process from uncivil acts in society to mutual respect and acts of humanness happens individually. But I hope that more information can be a part of that transformation. I hope that even if people continue to be racist before they commit that racist act, they remember or acknowledge that it is a racist act rather than dismissing it. And maybe some people will not be racist or as racist anymore. Right. You know? Uh, you write that Jane Crow types of oppression could also affect one's mental health, inciting mania uh-huh. or mental illness, fracture a wise woman's intellect, as they did so many other black women uh-huh. in America. The violently enforced codes of Jane Crow oppression place restrictions on my grandmother's body and inadvertently on her mind. Is that the end goal, do you think, of racial oppression, of racism, to restrict, if not fracture, the intellect of its victim? if it's to fracture the intellect, but I think it's to rig the system. So let me say, I do not know many black women who are not really, really smart. 
And I'm not saying that they are born biologically smarter because I do not believe in biological determinism. But I do believe that if you're negotiating power in a system or in, in an environment, I don't even want to say a system, in an environment that says because you're a woman, you need to chillax and relax and step back. And because you're a black person, you need to relax and chill back. And you're entitled to these things under the Constitution, but you also need to wait till I'm ready to get around to you, right? And I think that type of power negotiation, coupled with the fact that resources are often less accessible for black women, creates a certain type of strategy-oriented living that you really complexly think about things before you attempt to negotiate space. So something very simple, for example, let's say if you are a young single mother and uh, you you don't really um, earn, let's say, a living wage, right, of $32,000 a year, your child comes down with a cold, because the the nearest medical facility appointment doesn't happen until next week, you may need to get your child some cough medicine. So the strategy comes into place. Do I walk to the nearest store and pick up just any cough medicine, or do I think about who might have the, the largest amount of cough medicine at the cheapest price and the best dosages? So my child can be well until I can get my child into the doctor. And those are the kinds of choices that you might have to make if you live in a space where, um, like, let's say pharmacies are not readily accessible. So just like grocery stores aren't always accessible in, um, in oppressed communities. So that may require some form of negotiation. Um, in terms of transportation, it may require negotiation in terms of child care, it may require negotiation in terms of resources. And so it's a whole strategic approach to simply picking up some cough syrup so your child's uh, pain is eased. Something that we take very much for granted, I think, when we live in areas that are not depressed. You also write about how during the Jim Crow era, even if you weren't incarcerated, you would feel imprisoned. Do you all, mm-hmm. does that feeling, to what degree does that feeling still linger to this day from the Jim Crow era? Oh, um, I undo those feelings all of the time. Because, let me start here. I am committed to my freedom more than I am committed to recognizing oppression in my individual life. So if it looks like a boundary or a border that's based on a mythological hierarchy that's rooted in race, gender, or some type of elitism, I immediately ignore it. I am always in cultural spaces that people assume are culturally white. I'm always present in those spaces. And I try to be present as my cultural, authentic self. You know, that's... So, 
I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You're, 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 no, you're making you're making really great points. I just have you know. I just wanted to ask you because uh, you you write that writing a poem, uh, writing poems about such black. I would call them her- heroic incarcerated black women mm-hmm. uh, has forced me to question what it means for a black woman to engage in resistance within this particular time in this specific space. I concluded yes. that it means that I must give myself permission. To love, wail, mm-hmm. weep, grieve, call on yeah. ancestors. We were talking to Dar Jamal last week. He has a new book called The End of Ice. And he said this is a time that we should be grieving mm-hmm. for the globe, uh, for the, uh, the planet because that's the only way I we can move forward. Uh, you say begin a daily ritual of resistance, even if it is rooted in my fears. It means understanding the fluidity of my emotions, like wanting to grab mm-hmm. a gun and turn it toward my th- threats before setting it inside my mouth and then finally locking it away. What Mm -hmm. do you mean by that? Why does questioning what it means for a black woman to engage in resistance within this particular time in this specific uh, space lead you to Mm -hmm. that kind of feeling? Okay, well, I'm going to I don't know if this is the right answer, but I'm going to start with the answer that's coming to me now. So I recognize um, that I'm a black woman that has two PhDs and that's a certain type of social currency that other black women may not be able to, or other people may not be able to access. But that's the immediate memory. My long-term memory knows and understands very clearly that I in no way see myself intellectually superior to other black women I know. It is a black woman right now that's surviving on an income below the poverty level. That's figuring out how to send her child to college. Like that woman's smart. You know, I also think about people like Zora Neale Hurston and Anna Julie Cooper, who were denied the opportunity to have PhDs in the United States because of their race and gender. And then... I think that so much progress or social progress has been made, particularly following eight years of hope in this society, right? Eight years of a somewhat visible representation that uh, the polarities associated with racism were at least shifting in popular culture because of the presence of the former first family, Michelle and Barack Obama, and their children and mother. Um, and then in 2014 and 15 and 16, to watch the surge of violence against African Americans and the media surge of articulating and um, showing uh, this type of violence over and over and over again, I, I think if, if, you, if you weren't depressed during that time, then I really have to question uh, the stability of, of, of your emotions and your humanity. You know, um, any human being I think cannot be confronted with those levels of violence and um, not not be impacted by them. And so that I think that's what I was saying, like allowing myself to process that information 
be impacted by the information. And ultimately, part of the part of the stories in this book came from me making a decision that, okay, I'm not, number one, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to kill myself. Number two, I do not want to live a depressed life from now until this sentiment becomes less popular in American culture. But what I do need to learn to do is how to negotiate power in my human and negotiate humanity under these circumstances. And the people that I knew that knew how to do that were black women that had experienced similar things or even more intense oppression historically. I want to uh, quote one of your poems because we, you know, it's it's Please. really it's difficult to do an interview with poetry without people having the poetry in front of them. And so I'm not going to be able to mm-hmm. cite your entire poem, but I want to talk about one part of it. You write in the, your introduction to your poem about Sandra Bland. Sandra Bland was 28 years old when she was found hanging in a jail cell in Waller County, Texas, three days earlier. Bland was pulled over and stopped for a minor traffic violation that resulted in her arrest because she attempted to defend herself. Although her death was initially ruled a suicide, it is a fact that the Texas County and FBI determined that the Waller County Jail and the arresting officer failed to follow required policies. Mm -hmm. In September 2016, Bland's mother settled a wrongful death uh, lawsuit against the county jail and police department for $1.9 million. It is important to note that prior to her arrest, Bland curated and documented her protests of police killings on various social Mm -hmm. media sites. So that's really Mm -hmm. using the hashtag Sandy Speaks. Now, in your poem Mm -hmm. on Sandra Bland, you write, It could have been me, with three Mm -hmm. degrees creased into the front seats, bits of the Constitution in my veins, like Braille, the Declaration tattooed inside my eyelids. How many times did Sally Hemings have to hear about them and affirm uh, the tiny ego of Tom? before he bears himself to his brothers collecting their boastings, forgiving his debts. Can mm-hmm. activism and a constant focus on your rights that are you're being deprived of, can that lead to problems with police? Can knowing your rights be a problem yes. when interacting yes. with police? Yes, and I think it can be a problem if not with police. I, I want to say as with individuals that are serving in the role of police officers. And one thing that I do in that poem that we won't have time to explore, but I hope your listeners will have an opportunity to read that poem, is it makes a turn from being inside of the head of, of Sandra Bland to considering what could have been on the officer's mind before he even met Sandra Bland. And so in order for these acts of violence, I think, to happen against black bodies, these officers or people that may be committing these acts of violence to people they do not know or do not have a previous relationship with, I think it comes with some type of weight or rehearsed memory where the the um, in this case, for a lack of a better term, the murderer or um, the arresting officer again, 
I'm speaking improvisationally, so my my words may not be specific as I want them to be. But what kind of weight in terms and assumptions did he already bring to the conversation with Sandra Bland when they met during that traffic altercation? What were the assumptions that he already brought? Clearly from the video, we know that Sandra Bland, the assumptions that she brought with her is that I'm a U.S. citizen and I need to know what part of the law I have broken for me to be pulled over and what are your intentions when approaching me and touching my body? And I think those are all valid questions. But the the missing X factor for me or what were the assumptions that the officer brought to the arrest? And that's the kind of thing that you can only really do well with poetry. And I just want to point out mm-hmm. before I ask you my final question, uh, the uh, one of the really, really interesting things about your book is that the structure of each poem reflects the person who the poem is about. So Ida mm-hmm. B. Wells does all this statistical uh, accumulation for lynchings that happen in the United States, and you set that mm-hmm. up as kind of a mathematical equation. And I just thought it's just fascinating the way that you structured the Thank different you. poems to reflect the different people. So the, our listeners should definitely check out this book. These are really great poems. You can really spend a lot of time so looking much. over them and thinking about them a lot. But in the meantime, I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with scholar and writer Damaris B. Hill, author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, we call it the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write about your experiences serving in the United States Air Force and contrast them with your experiences as a mother of a civilian who happens to be a black Mm -hmm. man and a target of police brutality and the racist backlash that is articulated as political and social psychological violence. As Mm -hmm. a service member, to what degree do you feel complicit in the system that fosters the police violence and that now targets your son both physically and more importantly psychologically well the the answer that i'm going to give is i kind of explore that in the piece uh the patriot and the prisoner in that piece uh literally is um an illusion to another armed service veteran who was also uh, won the Pulitzer Prize in poetry in Yusuf Komiaka. And in his piece, Ode to the One-Legged Soul, he talks about um, a prisoner of war um, in Vietnam and how the guard of that prisoner of war announces every time a black civil rights leader has been killed and basically questions the the African-American or black prisoner of war, like, what are you fighting for? Um, And so that piece is definitely an homage and kind of a a literary allusion to that piece, my, my piece, The Patriot and the Prisoner. And where I not only explore my individual service, but it's important to say that my father is a veteran of Desert Storm, that my grandfather fought in the Korean and Vietnam Wars, 
And then he was very instrumental in developing some of the technology that we use today. My grandfather was. Wow. Um, right. And, and actually, that picture that opens up the book is a picture of my grandmother when her and my grandfather were living in Germany because that's when my grandfather was stationed because he um, helped develop some very special technology and helped to oversee some important information in the 50s in that area, right? And so um, I don't only explore it as an individual, but I explore it intergenerationally. Like, what does it mean if I am held prisoner by civilian paramilitary people such as police officers, and I do not think this is true, but many people that have served in the military and in the armed forces see uh, the paramilitary forces as a lesser force, let's be clear, right? And um, I don't see them as unequal, but many people do. That is an assumption. Now, I don't think that police officers should have access to military-grade weapons because they haven't been trained properly to use that equipment, but that's something different than thinking that they are less than. I do not think they are less than. Um, But I'm playing with that whole notion of authority, right? Like, if this person that is guarding me in this moment thinks that they have racial superiority in terms of being an American, let me explain to you that it is not likely that your ancestors have been in this country longer than mine. It's not likely, right? It's not likely that your sacrifices that you made for the United States of America are greater than the generational sacrifices that my family has made to the United States of America. It is not likely that a paramilitary person that has not served in the military would even have the security clearance to investigate the contributions that my family has made. And yet, the same person may feel that they are the authority over my son, who could have one day been your president because of the investments we have made, right? And so, yeah, yeah. that's what that's about. Well, Damaris, I got to tell you, this is a fantastic book. I really appreciate you being on our show. Scholar and writer Damaris B. Hill, author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. Find out more about her at DamarisHill.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Damaris Hill. Thank you so much. Can I say one more thing? Sure, sure. Okay, please, if you're interested in hearing more of the poem, buy the book, number one. But two, you can also uh, catch a reading I did at Politics and Prose on February 1st on C-SPAN, 11 p.m., Eastern Standard Time, February 10th. 11 p.m., February 10th. I am going to put uh-huh. that into my DVR <laughs> right now. Thank you very much, Damaris. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. just heard from the writer and scholar Damaris B. Hill on her book, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. 
I agree. A bound, a bound woman is a dangerous thing. It, it makes me think of what's going on with uh, abortion stuff and the, the government's attempt to bound up women's options, you know, and then it gets us talking about more dangerous things, like, how are we going to do the abortions ourselves? <laughs> um, and, I mean, Demars actually brought up something pretty important, which was that pharmacy is not always accessible to everybody, especially people of color. And so, like, I mean, I should say first, I definitely think abortion pills should be accessible to everybody. Pe should be able to buy that over the counter. Um, but even if you could, like, you know, what What if there's a natural disaster that, what if there's a tornado that destroys your pharmacy? Like, you know, I don't know. I guess maybe I'm kind of, kind of a doomsday prepper. But I would like to know how the wild carrot seed growing on my street might <laughs> help me out a little bit if, you know, if there's something like not having health insurance blocking my way of getting medical care. <laughs> you know how it goes. I forgot to read the question from hell earlier in this episode, so my apologies. Let's get to that. The This week's question from hell is, what did Chuck miss in the past two months? What did Chuck miss in the past two months? Well, apparently Dan stopped off here on Facebook at the response. What didn't he miss? <laughs> I don't know. The question is, what did he miss? And Joanne C., I think, I mean, for me, it's, this is the winner. Drop the mic after Joanne C. What did Chuck miss? His period. Or what didn't Chuck miss? Well, I guess that's what he didn't miss, probably. But... What did Chuck miss? His period. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Anyways, Ronaldo Migaldi, I know him, says, the biggest and best sale with the greatest values in Chicagoland. I don't know. What did Chuck miss in the past two months? Apollo S says, Alex. I'm not so sure about that because Alex was, uh, you know, getting Chuck all sorts of weed gummies, so I think they got to see each other a little bit. Aaron D. says, the death of politics as we know it. I don't know if you missed that. <laughs> I think he might be aware of it. Uh, John M. says, the entire left and the entire right put aside all their differences to go gaga for Vladimir. Alright. <laughs> John T. says, habanero, bran muffins, and Tucker Carlson's toasty taters. All right. I think uh, that's probably all I really need to read for today. I'll leave the rest for Sebastian. Um, I'm not sure how many responses are on the Twitter right now, but if you're listening live, you still have time to get your response in to this week's question from hell. You still have, like, 24 hours. So get that on the Facebook page. Get that on the Twitter page. Email it to uh, Sebastian, Seb at This Is Hell. Not me. Don't email it to me. I won't do anything with it. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. And I think that's everything I'm supposed to say. I did the question from hell. I played the interview. And I was just a hit. 
the closer. Okay, I forgot a few things. One, donate to abortion funds because abortion pills are expensive and not everyone can afford them. If you got money, do it. Two, women supporting women is another good website with resources. And three, if you need more alternative resources and information, if you're maybe weird and like plants and or don't have much money um, and you're interested in wild carrot seed, go to researchgate.net. There's an article, a literature review with 63 sources cited from the American, I'm sorry, the Australian Journal of Herbal Medicine. Uh, printed in 2014, so it's not that long ago. And it has some really good information on the seeds. It's from the, from the chemistry to the history. It says, uh, Dacus carota, that's the Latin name, have been described, the seeds of Dacus carota have been described as an abortifacient amenagogue, which is something that stimulates menstruation, from what I understand. Contraceptive and aphrodisiac in a variety of publications throughout European history. These documents also indicate use by women for over 2,000 years as a means to control fertility. Um, so, more recently, ethnobotanical investigations have documented the use of the carrot seeds as a method of fertility control by women in India, and North American grassroots herbalists have documented its use for contraception. So it actually was first described as an abortifacient by Hippocrates, who was born in 460 BCE, according to this book. And then late, similar uses were later recorded by all these people, Pliny, Discorides, Scribonius, Largus. I don't know who these people are, but they're in this paper. So I'm not a doctor, I'm not an expert, but I have taken these seeds. They have never harmed me. You know, I only take a small amount. And they have made my period come early. That's why my period usually comes early, I think, because I use these amenagog herbs, I guess. Um, and I just think, 2,000 years ago, what would have been the difference between a late period and an early miscarriage? Like, I don't know. Again, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. I've never... Don't think I've ever had a miscarriage. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but anyways, you get my drift. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.